It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, which is something I haven't been able to say for a minute. We are back in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up where we left off last, what was it, July, in chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Luke chapter 15 beginning on page 874 of the church Bible, page 874. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you. That is this congregation's gift to you. Well, as I said, it's been a minute since we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and because it's been so long, I want to just take a second to kind of set the stage and remind us where we left off in July. The Gospel of Luke was written by a Gentile who goes by the name of Luke. He's the only non-Jew to have written any part of the New Testament. He's a brilliant man, a physician and historian. He was a close friend of the Apostle Paul. And so far as we know, Luke was not an eyewitness to the events in his gospel. Rather, he compiled an orderly account of these matters through interviewing those who were. Luke compiled a narrative so as to give certainty concerning the matters, the life and the teaching of the man Jesus Christ. And we'll pick up where we left off In chapter 15, the Lord has set his face to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, where he will be betrayed, where he will be beaten, crucified, and he will raise from the dead on the third day. So we're in the last leg of Jesus' ministry. He's rounded third and he's headed for home. And his ministry changes now. His healing ministry diminishes. I think there are maybe only two more healing miracles in the rest of the gospel. Much of the rest of the gospel is taken up with the Lord's teaching ministry. So what I'll do in chapter 15 is I'll read verses 1 down to verse 10, and then I'll pray for our time together in His Word, and then we'll work our way through these verses together. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who need no repentance. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we bow before you in, in humility and we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit and enable us to understand the word that we have just read. Let us understand the words of your Son, Jesus. Write these truths now upon our hearts. And may the seed of your word find good soil in our hearts. May it take root downward and bear fruit upward for the glory of Christ and the advance of the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. There are three parables in Luke chapter 15. And all three of them are poorly named. Three parables in Luke 15. And the parables are in your Bible probably called the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I think they're all poorly named. They've been called that for a long time, and I don't expect it to change anytime soon, but I think that's true. If we pay close attention to the context of Luke 15, namely the first two verses, I think you'll see why the Lord told these parables and to whom. And taking that into consideration, the titles, Lost Sheep, Lost Coin, Prodigal Son, are, um, uh, how shall we say it, they uh, put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It seems to me that the emphasis of the first parable is not the lost sheep, but the seeking shepherd. And the emphasis of the second parable is not the lost coin, but the searching woman. And I think we'll see next week that the third parable is not actually all about the prodigal son, but about the gracious father. It seems to me that the point of these three parables is the joy that comes when what had been lost, is found. All three parables of Luke 15 teach the same lesson. Now, a parable is a story that teaches the lesson, and all three of these parables teach the same lesson. And that lesson is this. To share in the joy of God, who seeks sinners... And brings them to repentance for His glory and His joy. To share in the joy of God who seeks sinners, brings them to repentance for His glory and for His joy. You'll notice that the word in is in parentheses, which I'll explain why at the end. But this is the big idea of Luke 15, the best as I can tell. But you be good Bible students and you query the text and you, you see if I'm right about that. We'll start with the context of Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. There are several contextual clues that will help us to understand the parables that follow. So what do we have? Let's sort of lay it out. The first 
we have Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Almighty, the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. He's condescended to add humanity to his, humanity to his divinity. He's taken on flesh and bone. The thrice holy God of Isaiah 6 is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes. We have the tax collectors. And the tax collectors are probably the most despised group of people in first century Palestine. They were considered traitors. They were considered thieves. And for good reason. The Roman government had taken control and subjected God's people and forced God's people, the Jews, to pay taxes to Rome. Those taxes were collected by their fellow Jews who made money by collecting more taxes than were due, skimming off the top. And this made tax collectors, many of them, very rich and also very hated. So imagine if Michigan invaded Ohio and took over. And the governor of Michigan made Ohioans pay taxes to her so that she could build a, a bigger stadium and have better recruiting for the Michigan Wolverines football team. And now imagine also that your IRS agent lived on your street and was a fellow Ohioan. And he would collect more taxes than you were due. He knew it. You knew it. And there was nothing you could do about it. And it made him very rich. He has the biggest house on the block. This is the tax collector in Jesus' day. And they're coming to Jesus. And he's receiving them and eating with them. Now you also have the sinners. You can think of them like your run-of-the-mill, low-class, undesirables. People who had made a mess of their lives. People who had been looked down upon. Drug addicts, probably. Prostitutes, maybe. An ex-demoniac here and there. Think of them like those guys in the cities who, when you're stopped at a stoplight, they come into the traffic and they go and they offer to wash your windshield. You don't really want your windshield washed, but you're too embarrassed to say no to them and you're a little nervous about how much to pay them or even roll down your window. Those kinds of people are coming to Jesus and he's receiving them. Turncoat tax collectors, hookers, addicts, and scary windshield washer kind of people. Jesus is surrounded by the undesirables, the guilty, the heavy laden, the lowly. And they're drawing near to Jesus, pressing in to hear his every word. For there is something about this man that draws in desperate people. Sinners of every stripe. High class sinners like the tax collectors. And those from the slums. And why would this be? Because misery is attracted to mercy. The guilty are attracted to the gracious for the same reasons that a starving man is attracted to the man giving away free food. 
So we have tax collectors. We have sinners coming to Jesus. Next, we have the Pharisees and the scribes. And they come from the nice neighborhood. The gated communities with the pristine landscapes. The word Pharisee means one who is separate. Whole Foods kind of people. Neiman Marcus kind of people. They wouldn't be caught dead in a Walmart or thrift store. They're separate. And they're grumbling. The word means to express dissatisfaction, to complain, to murmur. And what are they complaining about? Well, verse 2 tells us that this man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees had been brought up by rabbis who had taught that the righteous should not associate with the godless. And they took great offense at Jesus Christ, who was claiming to be a holy man who is receiving sinners and eating with them, and they're scandalized. You see, eating with someone in that culture was more than like sitting down at Chick-fil-A and having a chicken sandwich. Eating with someone in this culture carried the implications of acceptance, of friendship, of community. And these Pharisees are scandalized because Jesus is eating with sinners. Which, of course, Jesus always ate with sinners. If he didn't eat with sinners, he would be eating alone. Now, they're right about something, though. This is scandalous. The fact that this man, Jesus Christ, who inhabits eternity, who dwells in unapproachable light, who has flung a billion trillion stars, who told the oceans this far and no more, this man who towers over all men, this man who is uncreated, who is eternal, this man to whom archangels bow, this man whose glory and might cannot be described in any tongue of man, this fact that this man eats with sinners, the fact that this man eats with anyone at all is scandalous. That word receives is a stronger word in the Greek than it is in English. It means to accept favorably, to receive into real companionship. This man gives Real sinners, real access to his life, to himself. He welcomes sinners with the greatest friendliness, and that is nothing short of scandalous. Now, PBC, in our time through the Gospel of Luke, we've talked about this before. We've talked about this little Pharisee that lives in each one of us. And I've prayed for you. Because gospel ministry looks a lot more like a medical tent in a war zone than it does a sterilized doctor's office in the first world. It's messy. A church who heralds the excellencies of Christ will draw the undesirables. As God's people, saved by grace, united to Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, as we share His joy in telling other sinners about the glory of Christ in the gospel, the Lord may be pleased to draw sinners to Himself and save them and unite them to His people. At the cross, 
arbitrary societal distinctions are erased. Which means people come from both sides of the track. The single mother shares the Lord's Supper with the CEO. The recovering addict may find himself discipling the city planner. This is because every seat at the Lord's table is on the same level save one. Rich, poor, weak, strong, needy, all are the same. When the Lord is pleased to draw the undesirables into this church, PBC, be aware of the little Pharisee in your heart. Beware his grumbling. For he cannot abide the weak, the lowly. He cannot abide the sloppy and the imprecise. And he grumbles at the Lord's reception of the unkempt and the inadequate and the unqualified and the impoverished. And that little Pharisee in you hates that his distinction is erased at the Lord's table. And he hates that in the kingdom of God there are no congratulations, that there are only thank yous. Keep this in your mind as we work our way through these three parables. For it is in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees in which Jesus tells these three parables. We'll have a look at the first one, which we will call the parable of the seeking shepherd. Let's read verse 3 down to 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 3 gives us a contextual clue. He told them this parable. That's really important when you're studying the Bible to identify pronouns. Who is the them? The them is the Pharisees and the scribes of verse 2, the ones who are grumbling. And this is an important clue. So whatever impact is meant by these parables, it is meant to be impressed upon the self-righteous Pharisee. And now you'll remember from when we were talking about the Pharisees earlier, the tendency is that when you put attention on the Pharisee, the Pharisee wants to divert attention away to someone else. We're not talking about them, we're talking about you, Pharisee. So keep your nose in the mirror. Another clue to the meaning behind this parable is in in the way Jesus starts these three parables. Notice in verse 4, what man having a hundred sheep. So the main character of this parable is the shepherd. Skip down to verse 8, what woman having ten silver coins. So the main character is the woman. 
And this is true even of the prodigal son, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So the main character there, the father. So whatever else, other meaning there is in these parables, we should be looking at the shepherd and the woman and the father to find the meaning. So we'll start with the shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And he loses one. He loses one out of a hundred. Percentage-wise, that's 99% retention. That's pretty good. But is that what the shepherd thinks? Does he congratulate himself that at the end of the day, I'm like, well, I left with 100, I'm coming back with 99. It's 99%. How many of you would like 99% retention on your customers? That's not what he thinks. Because he's a shepherd. Like, I have four kids. If I go to Disney World and come back with three, I'm not like, well, I got, you know, I got three more. (laughs) No parent thinks like that. No shepherd thinks like that. So the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open field, probably with an under-shepherd, and goes searching for the one that was lost. Because of course they would. No parent, no shepherd is ever happy with anything less than 100% of those in their care being accounted for and safe. And so when you lose one, everything stops. A couple of years ago, our family went to the Columbus Zoo, and we brought, my in-laws were with us, and my nieces were with us. And somehow, we lost my niece around the polar bear exhibit. And now you might be wondering, how in the world can you lose a kid? If you're wondering that, it's only because you only have one. You get, it's, it's this thing, like toddlers, one toddler is one thing, but you get two toddlers together, and they can teleport or something. Like little ninjas, they just, poof, they're gone. They make all kinds of noise, and then suddenly, they're missing. I don't know how it works. So my niece come up missing, and you know what happens when, when a little one comes up missing? Everything stops. We don't care about the polar bears. Nobody cares about the monkeys. Nobody's getting ice cream. Nobody's riding any rides until the baby gets found. This is panic. Circle the wagons. Let's find the little one who's been lost. Now, thankfully, we found our niece. She was fine. She had just teleported or something. I don't know. But in the parable, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go look for the one. And in the parable, the shepherd is God. And the lost sheep is the sinner. And God goes after the sinner. God seeks the sinner. Now, sometimes we Christians like to talk about finding God. But God isn't lost. We're the ones who were lost. Like, you, Christian, found God in the same way that you found your mom on the day you were born. So on Wednesday, Thursday, Sarah and I had the privilege to go visit a couple who had just had a baby. And we congratulated mom and dad. But you know who we didn't congratulate? The baby. We didn't say, baby, good job finding a good home. The baby had nothing whatsoever to do with it. It's the same thing. You didn't find God, God found you. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. Now, we're the sheep in this parable. And we don't like being called 
sheep. But that's what we are. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we're all like sheep. We've all got ourselves lost. Why don't we like being called sheep? <laughs> because we know what sheep are. Right? Like sheep aren't cool. There's no eight-year-old going, who would win, a gorilla or sheep? No one is afraid of sheep. You don't have guard sheeps. They're just, they're defenseless goats made of warm sweaters. That's what they are. I learned this this week, that sheep don't have natural defenses, and so when they're lost, it's really dangerous because they could get killed. But if they fall over with a full fleece on, if they fall over, their legs are stuck up so much that they can't like roll themselves over. They just lay on their back with their feet stuck up in the air, and they suffocate to death. Nobody wants to be called a sheep, but the shepherd knows this, and so the shepherd goes after the lost sheep and seeks the sheep until the sheep is found. Look at verse 5, when he has found it. Not if. He seeks until he finds it. That's, that's what the shepherd does. I'd still be in Columbus Zoo if it hadn't, we hadn't found my niece. That's what you do. You just keep looking till you find the one that's been lost. So the sheep drifts away. The shepherd goes after the sheep. And notice what the shepherd does when he finds the sheep. Jesus says, he lays it on his shoulders. Now an adult sheep can weigh up to 80 pounds, 90 pounds. So this is a significant burden. He lays the sheep on his shoulders. It's dirty, nasty belly against his neck. His, its legs draped over his shoulders and probably tied together. And he carries the lost sheep back to the fold. The shepherd lays the burden of the lost sheep on his shoulders. And notice Jesus says he does so rejoicing. Not grumbling, Pharisee. He's not cursing the folly of the stupid sheep. What do you think you're doing, sheep? Stay with the flock, dummy. He's not cursing. He's not scolding her. He's happy she's okay. He's got, the, he's got her warmth on his shoulders and he's wearing a huge smile as he carries her back to the flock. And when he gets back, he calls his neighbors, he calls his friends and says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. He's throwing a party. And don't miss that point. That is all over these parables. Verse 5, rejoicing. Verse 6, rejoice. Verse 7, joy. Now compare that to verse 2, grumbling. See, this parable is about the joy of the shepherd who found the lost sheep. It's about the joy that just spills out of him. That he shares with others, just 
throws a party. And this parable is told in contradistinction to the grumbling of the self-righteous Pharisees. Verse 7 explains it. Jesus says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now Jesus isn't saying that 99% of Christians don't need to repent. He's saying that the Pharisees have it all wrong. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Do you remember back when Luke told us about how Jesus called Matthew the tax collector to himself? And people, the Pharisees grumbled there too. This man wants, he's not, only receiving ta- he's not only receiving tax collectors and having meals with them, he wants them on their t- his team and the grumbling. And Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Same thing here. He receives sinners and eats with them because it brings him glory and joy. Listen to the second half of Isaiah 53.6. We read the first part earlier. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Second half of the verse. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is your Savior's joy to carry the lost sheep on his shoulders to restore them to the flock of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The second parable in Luke 15 communicates the same message. And we'll call this parable the parable of the searching woman. Let's read it again, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, The Pharisees would have hated the hero of the first parable being a shepherd because shepherds were low class. They were lowly. They were the undesirable. And they would have hated the hero in the second parable being a woman. These parables are all about contrasts. The Lord is identifying himself with the lowest and the least. And he tells the story of a woman who loses a coin. One out of ten. Ninety percent retention, but it's a coin. And so she goes looking for it. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently till she finds it. See, in the first century, they, most houses would not have had like paved floors or wooden floors. They would have had dirt floors. Houses would have been rather dark. And so a coin that gets lost and covered up with dirt would have been rather difficult to find. And so she searches and searches and searches until she finds it. Now, I don't want to press this 
parable further than our Lord intends. So take this for what it's worth. But it is interesting, the Lord's use of a woman losing a coin. A coin carries value because of value that is attributed to it by those who minted the coin. It is stamped with the image of another. And that image is what validates it and gives it its value. So, in its weight in gold, so to speak, a coin might not be worth that much. But if it has the image of the Caesar on it or whatever, then it represents whatever value is attached to it. In addition, a coin can't find itself. It lays under the dirt. It's unusable, unused, no longer contributes to the value for which it has been made. It's the same thing with us before Christ. Human beings are made in the image of God, stamped with His image. But by our sin, we lay in the dirt, so to speak. We've lost the purpose for which God created us, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. But that isn't until Jesus Christ, the light-bearing searcher, finds us and brushes the dirt off of us and restores us to Himself. When the woman finds the coin that she had lost, she does the same thing the shepherd did. She throws a party. And she calls her friends together. Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. The point of the second parable is the point of the first parable. It's the same. It is the joy of the one who found the thing that was lost. Jesus explains there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this, these two parables, they have a lot to say to you about who you are, about who God is. And they tell you, sinner, that you are lost. And that you can't find yourself, regardless of what literally every movie ever made tells you. You can't find yourself. You can't get yourself found. God has drawn near to you today and shined His light on the face of Jesus Christ, showing you His Son. See, this is what the Lord does for sinners like you. Like the shepherd with the lost sheep, He comes to them and lays their burden on His shoulders And carries the burden of their sin to the cross of Calvary. Where he absorbs the punishment and penalty for their sin. They laid him in the grave and three days later God raised him from the dead. So that all that who turn to him in faith. Forgiven of their sins. United to Christ. And brought into the flock of God. So sinner, repent of your sins today. Turn to him. And tell someone about it. Before you leave here, tell someone. The reason the word in was in parentheses, the beginning, was because as Christians, we not only have the privilege to share in the joy of God and saving the lost, but we also have the privilege to share that very joy With the lost. We have the privilege 
to tell the lost that God is like a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. We have the privilege to tell the lost that God is like a woman who finds a coin that she had lost. And he uses means to do this. And brother and sister, we are some of those means. We have been given the privilege to share in the joy of God in saving sinners and the privilege of sharing God's joy with sinners. We've been given the privilege to proclaim the excellencies of Christ with our family and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. We get the privilege of going to the lowest and to the least and telling them what God has done for us. Since we were the sheep that was lost and has been found, we were the coin that was lost and was found, we get to be a case in point for this God who seeks the lost. We get to tell them about the excellencies of Christ who delights to draw undesirables like us to himself. We get to cross cultural and linguistic barriers to carry the good news that the guilty can find grace. That the burdened can find rest. That the weak can find strength. That the afflicted can find comfort in Christ. We get to tell them about this man who receives sinners and eats with them. 150 years ago, a missionary to South Africa put it like this in a song. In tenderness, he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders bought me. Back to his fold again. With angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your mercy and grace. In sending your son Jesus to us and for receiving us, undesirables, being a friend of sinners. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his illuminating word, for finding us when we were lost and helpless. Lord, will you please forgive us for being like the Pharisees. Forgive us for our self-righteousness, for joylessness in the gift of our salvation. Forgive us for despairing your reception of the lowest and the least, tax collectors and sinners. Forgive us for trying to make much of ourselves and congratulate ourselves at your table. And Lord, restore us to the joy of your salvation. Joy of knowing you have come to seek and save that which is lost. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us joy to share you with others this week. Give us a joy-fueled boldness to share Christ every chance we get this week. 
Make this church a haven for the weary and for the weak. A place where sinners can come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ and have their hearts transformed and be brought into the faith and united to Christ. Give us grace to disciple and to be discipled for the glory of Christ and for His joy. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Today's assurance of pardon comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, where if you have confessed your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, giving you this assurance from Hebrews 8, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's sing about that.